Hello, TSF family. We wanted to start off by saying thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast and for your hard work to love yourself more and for your feedback. Can you believe it's been three years that we've been doing this spiritual fix and it has been such a beautiful labor of love for Anna and me. We have loved doing this work. We've loved hearing from you and we love exploring ourselves and each other alongside our listeners. We wanted to put out the call for three ways that you can help support us to support you. One, we would love you to leave us a review on iTunes or follow us on Spotify. Two, drop us an email and let us know how much the podcast means to you. And three, you can donate monthly or even just once to our PayPal patronage. Every little bit helps and we are so grateful to those of you who have donated already. Thank you. You help make this podcast possible. Thanks, y'all. You can go to our website, www.thisspiritualfix.com for information on how to pledge as well as to email us. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 21, season four of this Spiritual Fix. Today is our season finale and our final trauma episode on healing. Enjoy. This spiritual fix. Two mystical mamas hacking the self-help game. With Anna Stromquist and Christina Wilson. Hi, y'all. We wanted to give you a disclaimer and trigger warning about this episode, as well as all the episodes in the trauma series, in which we will be talking about domestic violence and other issues along those lines, which could be triggering to people. Love y'all. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Anna. Why are you so silly today? Because I've had coffee. I've had coffee. I've had coffee. That's why. And I'm going (laughs) to say it a lot. Yeah. Hopefully I'll be able to hear calm down in a second. I'll ask Archangel Michael to be like, tone it down, tone it down. I'm really excited. It's the last episode of our trauma episode. And it's our our season finale. And it's our season finale. So y'all are in for a whopper of an episode. Yeah. So what are we talking about, Anna? We're talking about trauma healing. Yep. And in this last episode, we talked about light versus dark, which is light, light therapy techniques or those that raise your vibration or facilitate healing and strength to tackle the dark shit. And then today we're talking about techniques that are both light and dark and dark and yeah. Cool. You've been having some insights about serial killers, haven't you? Yeah. So if you've been (laughs) listening to the show, I, earlier I talked about serial killers because I feel like they're the quintessential pathological version of a narcissist, which is like the father wound, but also the father wound lets the trauma happen. So I've been watching the Jeffrey Dahmer series. I finished it on Netflix and it was super, super disturbing. And it made me think a lot about the father wound and trauma and First of all, this series is a little controversial because the families of the victims feel like in some ways it makes you sympathize with Jeffrey Dahmer. I didn't think that at all. And it's also like a very painful thing that happened. And then for it to be on Netflix, it's just kind of bringing it all up again. I thought the series did a great job though, of telling the story from the victims and the victims' families. 
And what it did was it also like, I was just a kid when it happened. It happened in 91 that he was arrested. Were you, were you, do you remember this at all? You would have been even younger I, than I do because he was, I think I read Mad Magazine at the time and they were constantly like joking about him being a cannibal. Yeah. Well, I didn't realize all the racial and social implications of what he did. Like he was basically the Brock Turner of that era. Like he got caught molesting a boy a Laotian boy they're in the courtroom and he's this white guy and they're like you show great promise so we're just going to give you a slap on the wrist basically and then he goes on to actually do the same thing to this guy's this little brother and actually kill him and in one part that boy escaped and the police actually escorted him back to Jeffrey Dahmer's apartment and the African-American neighbor, she called like for five months or more complaining about the stenches and the weird behavior and the yelling and the power tools and the cops never freaking ever checked in. And yet when her daughter broke a white guy's camera for taking really inappropriate photos outside the building after Jeffrey Dahmer was caught and they call the cops, they come right there to arrest her. So it's like, it show, it just like highlighted so much of what's wrong with our patriarchal society. It was really, it was really, really, really disturbing. It's probably the most disturbing series I've ever seen in terms of, you know, plucking on that injustice wound and then seeing what happens with someone with a severe abandonment wound. Jeffrey Dahmer had severe abandonment issues and that's why he actually ate them because he wanted them to never leave him. So he wanted them to be in him. You know, it also got me thinking, why do I watch a lot of serial murder shows and listen to those podcasts? And, you know, we both wondered like, well, was it because I was a serial murderer in a past life or was I killed in the past life? And I think after coming out of that trauma bonding episode, I believe that one of the reasons I watch these shows is because I'm looking for some sort of rhyme and reason. I'm looking for some sort of, I know it sounds stupid, like some sort of justification or balance of scales. Like the people who get killed by serial murders, were they like really naive? Were they really trusting? And watching this show made me realize there, no, there is no rhyme or reason. There is no fucking there probably is on some level some cosmic balance but I sure as hell don't see it you know it's like you could be a normal person and completely miss all the red flags there might not be red flags you could just be in the wrong place at the wrong time and I think that part of me would like got interested in serial shows because I wanted to make sense of the insensible right like the the worst possible thing you could ever imagine is someone like taking pleasure out of killing you I mean, someone killing you in a rage fight, you know, or something kind of like makes more sense, but just to like someone to kill someone simply because they enjoy it. It's like this next level of like, how can that actually exist? Like it fucks so much with my sense of justice, right? Am I making sense here? It does. It does. I I think I would extend it and say that it is somewhat though, know thy neighbor, like know thy enemy, right? Because if you can watch all these shows and do this, then you can like figure out all the red flags and like maybe create like a encyclopedia in your head of things and situations to do because that's what happens when you live in a rape culture, right? Is like you have to like become aware of those things and those, and if you if you know it, then you can recognize it. I don't know, maybe I, yeah, I, maybe, I get what maybe, you're saying, yeah. Yeah, maybe yeah. it's prophylactic or preventative, but then also I think part of me was like, well, like, the people I know who have been abused or the abuse that I've endured, like, what did we deserve it? 
we don't, you know, we don't, it's just asking this impossible question. Like why, why? Right. Right. But I think it's also linked to past life, which is one of the things that you and I were talking about is that for me, you know, I have dreams and I'm obsessed with natural disaster movies, right? Like the, those are the things I don't watch serial murder or anything, but I watch natural disaster and plane crash movies because I know that I've died in both. So for me, being able to tap into that by watching it on film or experiencing it in my dreams is like something that's kind of, it feels like it releases tension in my body. It's almost like a passive way of trauma clearing because I like acknowledge it and I see it and I like recognize how traumatic and terrible it was, you know? And I feel like you have a history with that as well in your past lives. Right, right. Mass poisoning in my most recent past life. So maybe it's tied into that. Yeah, maybe we're attracted to watching the last way that we died you know, maybe to maybe. like relive, relive the exposure therapy, if you will, which we're going to get to later. Yeah. Yeah. That's some, um, that's, that's something else though. It's, it really is. And it always just, you know, white supremacy in all of its guises, is just such a terrible thing. And you can see how it, I mean, I remember in the nineties, we used to be like, Oh, this isn't the same, you know, this, th we've gotten over that. Right. And you're just like, what, what was it that Al Pacino said in the devil's advocate that the greatest trick the devil ever, ever, the devil ever pulled was to convince the world he didn't exist. Right. That's, you could say that about racism and privilege, right? Yeah. All of it. All of it. So we are in the process of going from, you know, as a reminder of what we're talking about is that we have our shadow work process that we talk about on the spiritual fix, which is access awareness process and remembrance. As a reminder, access is all about opening doors. We may be opening a lot of doors for you over the last four episodes. And, you know, we're going to be closing it up today talking about, you know, what kind of making it so that you can move through the next two steps, which is to expand your awareness of the different types of trauma, which is what we did more in the first three episodes, and then to help you with the processing part, which is what we did in the last episode, and we're going to continue in this episode. And then we're also going to be talking about remembrance and kind of the, the after balm that needs to be put on and the care and consideration for yourself that needs to be put on after you go through trauma processes, the changes that happen to your life, how you have to, the habituated behaviors that you put in as a result of your trauma, how you need to give yourself a lot of grace and those around you as well as you come out of those traumatic experiences and as you process your trauma. So that's that's where we're going today and that's where we have been. Yeah, so we're gonna first talk about some practices that either that you can, can put in the category of either light or dark, depending on just how it affects you that day or maybe yeah. the, the technique that you use or where you are in your process. So I'm gonna first talk about ayahuasca. So I myself have not done it and neither has Christina. I think we both want to, but we just, the timing hasn't been right. The legalities haven't been right. And also I take an SSRI, which we talked about antidepressants in the previous episode. And you have to be off SSRI for at least three months, I believe. Don't quote me before you take ayahuasca. Otherwise it can actually have a deadly lethal interaction. So the few people that I know have done ayahuasca have shared with me beautiful stories of, you know, touching base in the 5D or the 6D, greater understanding and connection to God and nature and healing a lot of unresolved trauma and ignorance, right? Like I've just heard beautiful, beautiful stories. And so I, I do think it's a wonderful 
for there, I should say case study wise, I think it can be a wonderful treatment for its trauma. Although the research isn't totally there yet, but that's probably because it's a little controversial, but from everyone who I love and trust that's done it, it is definitely an amazing and potent, potent therapy. So what is it? Ayahuasca is a hallucinogenic drink traditionally used by indigenous Amazonian tribes in the vein of the shamanic rituals. And it's prepared by boiling or soaking the bark or stems of this certain plant. The leaves of these plants contain DMT, a potential hallucinogenic, and the bark contains MO-A inhibitors, which are necessary for the activation of DMT. And DMT shares similar mechanisms of action of other hallucinogens like LSD, psilocybin, which is magic mushroom, and mescaline, aka peyote. People who say that ayahuasca is a great treatment for PTSD claim that it causes you to have to go back and address personal trauma. And I know that someone I know did it in a group setting with a shaman and one person in the whole group didn't have any, any reaction. And it didn't make any sense because she took it like everyone else and she was healthy. And it turned out that her trauma was being left out. And then she got to experience being left out in this thing. So, (laughs) and so she like ended up the next night, did it again and had a great experience. But like, as they say, the mother ayahuasca, the goddess ayahuasca, she will give you exactly what you need. Right. Right. And so that's, it's kind of interesting. So here's a question is ayahuasca recommended by the military health system for PTSD as veterans often have PTSD. And the answer is no, it is not. It is not a clinical practice guideline. And then what scientific evidence is there out there for it? And currently there is no evidence that it's effective in treatment of PTSD. Therefore, it's not recommended in current guidelines because there's just not enough evidence out there. But people go on retreats under the guidance of shamans. I know a lot of people who will travel to other countries to actually go through a retreat in order to do this. So I just wanted to go through quickly a little bit of the legalities of ayahuasca. Why it's so underrepresented is because of the legalities of this drug. So it's legal in Brazil. It's controlled in Chile. It's legal in Costa Rica. The cultivation of it is legal in Latvia. It's legal in Mexico, which is where a lot of people go to do it, as well as Peru. They'll they'll go to the Machu Picchu and do a trip. Now, in the United States, with the exception of ketamine, which is a controlled substance, which Christina is going to talk about, most psychedelic, most psychedelic drugs are illegal in the United States. At the time that this episode is recorded, these are the states that it's legal in. Now, obviously, do your research because by the time that you listen to this episode, the laws may have changed, and I don't want to be responsible for anyone breaking the law. But at present, Oregon is the only state where psychedelics are decriminalized everywhere in the state. In California, Oakland and Santa Cruz have passed local reform decriminalizing the personal use of psychedelics. In Seattle, Washington, you can do this. It's decriminalized. In Denver, Colorado, it's decriminalized. In Detroit and Ann Armour, Michigan, it's decriminalized. In Boston, Massachusetts, it is, as well as in Washington, D.C. So At present, if you want to give ayahuasca a try, those are the places you could potentially do it. I would definitely do it under the care of a shaman and and definitely let them know all the prescription medicine that you are taking months in advance, or you could go on a retreat abroad if you're interested. I'm definitely curious because of what friends have told me anecdotally, but again, the research isn't really out there yet, limited by legality stuff. Okay. Can I, can I just get, ask a clarification with that? Like, obviously there are a lot of psychedelics there's, you know, LSD, which is a man-made component. There's psilocybin, which is from magic mushrooms. There's DMT, which is in ayahuasca. There's mescaline, which is in peyote. There's MDMA, which your body actually 
Lordy, I think it's actually DMT. When you do certain breath techniques, you actually generate DMT in your body. Like, so, so when you say psychedelics, are they just like all psychedelics are legal or is it just like certain ones? Okay. So according to my research, ketamine is controlled, meaning a doctor can prescribe ketamine, right? right. It's legal and controlled. And then these are what is included under the, the definition of psychedelics. Psilocybin, which is what you find in magic mushrooms, LSD, which is acid, DMT, which is the active component in ayahuasca, mescaline, which is mescaline, which is present in peyote, and MDMA, also known as ecstasy or molly. Okay. Yeah. So so that's the kind of legality part of psychedelics. But is it like what is it about psychedelics that make it so that they are important for trauma work? And I have, we, throughout the season, I've been doing a ketamine. I've been doing using a controlled substance called ketamine at home, like an at-home treatment that they have in Georgia. That's like, I, it's a really great program. Honestly, it's got like a group therapy aspect. It's got like a nurse practitioner who's like making sure that you have the right dosage. They're stepping you up. They have like this whole app that like supports you when you're doing it. And it's, it's actually, I, I, for me, it was wholly enjoyable because as a, you know, someone who is at home all the time and my kids are always around and I'm working and I have like, you know, doing three jobs and I, you know, all that kind of stuff, like having two to three hours on a Sunday night, like six weeks in a row where I got to just like trip the fuck out was absolutely incredible for me. But, <laughs> the, <laughs> but the point is, is that like, ultimately I chose to, and other people chose to in my in my program who I was in a group therapy session with, they had chosen to, to go for ketamine because they recognized that they either had ruts in their ways of thinking or they had experienced like depression for long periods of time and maybe SSRIs didn't work. Um, or they were just interested in kind of expanding their awareness with it and kind of seeing where where it could go there was one person who was an older person who had been experiencing depression their entire life and they really wanted to get off of antidepressants right and so that's kind of why they did it and you know with ketamine in particular ketamine is you know everyone jokes so oh, ketamine is a horse tranquilizer right like that's i mean even in you know movies and things that it kind of you know it's obviously called special k when we were growing up it was called special k it's probably called something on the street everywhere in a different way and you know even even my husband was like you're gonna go in the k-hole voluntarily the k-hole and i've mentioned this before but the k-hole is basically like the kind of dissociative state that you go in when you're completely still right because the anesthetic aspect of ketamine is kicking in so you're you're not moving you're not feeling anything in your body but you're in this very vivid place internally, which is the quote unquote K-hole. So ketamine works specifically on the glutamate receptors in the brain. So glutamate and it blocks glutamate in the brain. And glutamate is basically critical for creating synapse and neural connections within the brain. So if someone has been depressed for a very long time, there's a chance that the neural pathways in their brain have actually eroded over time, that they have fewer neural pathways in their brain and so by putting ketamine into this at a low dosage it, it isn't its anesthetic quality it basically will make it so that it can actually increase the neuroplasticity in your brain meaning that it can actually create new neural receptors in your brain which can give your brain different pathways in which to deal with emotions and deal with things on a regular basis right and so you know i chose to do ketamine because of the fact that 
I wanted to see, you know, if I could kind of break out of this repetitive cycle of every eight to nine months, really feeling a lot of depression in my life, really a lot of different things like that. And if I could kind of get to the, the heart of my trauma, we'll go, there's going to be a bonus episode when I talk more in depth about my process and like kind of what I experienced. But ultimately what, what you'll see is that, is that for me, ketamine ended up being a space in which I could kind of concentrate on myself. Like I said, for those two to three hours, I ended up getting a ton of downloads. All of my psychic abilities were kind of like on high alert and my receptivity was just like crazy high. And I would say that I got to kind of get to the heart of some of the, the kind of messages that my brain had been telling myself all these years as a result of my trauma. Like you don't deserve to be loved. You're not good enough. Like it's not worth it being in a body. Like even even my understanding of love itself was something that I questioned in one in these in these sessions. So for me, the use of psychedelics was incredibly useful because I couldn't take antidepressants. I've never been able to. I've always had all these terrible side effects whenever I do. And usually I'm like the one who who gets worse on an antidepressant, right? And so that being the case, like I really think that if your your state allows it, if you have one of these programs, then you know, you can either go into an office and have an IV treatment in which you're being, you have a sitter who's actually going to be sitting there and asking you and prompting you questions and kind of taking you through a journey, or you can do it at home in which you also would have a sitter if you did it through a formal program. And then it may be worthwhile for doing that. What was your biggest takeaway from that ketamine? My biggest takeaway was that I, okay. Okay. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you my, okay. So my biggest takeaway was that like, I literally have not been depressed since I did this. Right. But I've also been working through a lot of trauma and it happened to totally coincide with me with a massive piece of trauma that I was coming through, whether or not the ketamine prompted the trauma release and the awareness of the trauma or whatever, the universe just put everything into the same bucket at the same time. And the ketamine was the tool that used to help me. I don't know. I can't necessarily put causality because the universe is just magical in my life like that. But I would say that I don't experience depression in the same way. I haven't gone through the full eight to nine month cycle yet since it happened, but I think that that's one of them. I think that there's also something that I, you know, one of my biggest like, oh my gosh, my mind is blown. I'm kind of in this place like, holy shit, was during the trip. A couple of times I would get really close to what I would call the door of non-identity, right? Which is basically this place where if you, you know that if you drop further into that space or if you go through that door, like you're going to go to a place where you no longer are yourself. And it's not like I'm a blade of grass or whatever, right? Like it, it's, it's even deeper than that. It almost feels like ego death, if you could say that, right? And that's the place that like I would continue in the psychedelic world to really go to. Cause I think that to me, that is like the place where you get to the heart of separation. And it's something that like, I'm really interested in exploring for future. So I've, I've considered doing psilocybin. There's microdosing psilocybin and occasionally they give you hero doses. So I've considered doing that. But at the same time, I have to look at legalities in Georgia because a couple of years ago, you couldn't even sell spores of magic mushrooms to anybody in Georgia. So it's a bit, they're a bit stricter with that even though they're not with ketamine. So yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Did you like actually go into the door? Or you just flirted with that door. Of I flirted with it. I flirted with it. Right. Yeah. 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 Because 
scary. I would, I, I, well, I would try and drop into it. And then it was almost like getting yanked out by the, I think my ego yanked me out by like my shirt collar, so to speak. That's what it felt like, you know, it's just like, don't go down there. Holy shit. One, no, 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 not allowed to go down there. We're not going to do that. Yeah. So that's good. Okay. So next processing is breath work and We've talked about holotropic breathing and Robbie, our shaman, has been the one that was really, really introduced both of us to holotropic breathing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be shamanic breathing or holotropic breathing, which is like a, a period of like, it's, it's a certain type of breath that basically changes the blood chemistry, changes your blood chemistry by super oxygenating your blood. And by doing that, it, it can again breath work can can stimulate dmt to naturally be basically generated in your gut which can can contribute itself to basically hallucinogenic experiences or just like experiences of feeling things and trauma coming up in your body in a more accelerated manner right so people who are doing breath work especially holotropic breath work may start to just cry uncontrollably they may start to to scream or or have like you know like things that feel like they're stuck in your body and having a practitioner when you do that especially the first time is fantastic because they can help you move through those periods and then being in a room full of other people who are doing it y'all are all going deep together like the deeper the deepest person goes everybody is allowed to go to that space as well so it's pretty amazing also i will say that outside of holotropic breath work pranayama in general is obviously a practice of yoga in which you're controlling the breath in order to to achieve certain outcomes right so Anybody who's done any kind of meditation or breath work or pranayama in a yoga class, or if you're a yoga teacher or something like that, you will learn that like, for instance, breath of fire, which is where you're, you're, you're breathing like, right. And you're doing that over and over and over again. If you do that for prolonged periods of time, it's going to do the same thing as holotropic breath work. Right. So there, I know people who've worked with yoga, yeah, like masters in India who basically will just do breath of fire all day and they'll start to be come into hallucinogenic experiences in which they're actually able to, it, it's like your trauma is sitting out on a stage in front of you, or it's coming up in your body. And it's just like, it's like, it's coming, it's, it's allowing the subconscious to release its contents into a place where it can then kind of sublime out of your system, sometimes harder than others, especially if you're holding on to it. So that's, that's breath work and kind of some of the different types. Very cool. All right. Delete. Well, I'm going to talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about body work because body work was one of my biggest gateways to spirituality and trauma work. I'm very interested in body work because it's actually what something that changed my entire life was my very first session of craniosacral therapy began with breathing. And then without even touching my body, he actually wasn't doing cranial sacral therapy at this point. He was just doing like energy work. I was able to feel all my chakras light up and I had a full body orgasm, fully clothed, not being touched. And it totally changed my whole perception of the body, which is why I eventually decided to go to become a physical therapist. Cause I was like, I learned that the body doesn't lie and that the body doesn't lie. The mind can take you out in circles and circles and circles, but the body doesn't lie. And the tra there is trauma in the body. I am going to talk about research, but I want to say for my own personal experience, my own direct experience, my own experience doing these kind of therapies, the trauma lives in your body and you can get it out through body work. And within body work, these practices can be light or dark, depending on which practice like Reiki and Sukhya Mahikari are going to be light work. 
and then other ones could be either, right? So just so you know, it's kind of like a, it's not a clear cut here. So I am a hundred percent a huge fan of body work. It's a very somatic practice too. So I'm going to talk about a couple different types of body work. So some body work we could say is energy work where they don't even touch your body. And two examples of this would be Reiki and Sukiyo Mahikari. Reiki is when people use symbols and they channel light into their hands and then give it to you. And as far as research goes, they did do a study and they found that Reiki is better than placebo. As a Reiki master, I would definitely attest to that. In terms of measurements of the parasympathetic nervous system, like reduced heart rate, reduced blood pressure, increased heart rate variability, and chronic health conditions, Reiki was found to be more effective than placebo for reducing pain, anxiety, depression, and improving self-esteem and quality of life. Okay. So it's not, so it's not completely all in your head. And then there's another practice called Sukiyo Mahikari, and they have their own research out there, but it's 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 a probably a little biased because it's coming from the Sukiyo Mahikari Institute. But Sukiyo Mahikari is very similar to Reiki, but they claim that it it can't be tainted in the same way that Reiki is because it's a direct portal from God versus like a channeling of energy. And I'm not hundred percent sure of the different different differentiation, but you can learn more about that by going to a local Sukiyo Mahikari temple where they just administer light all day to anyone who wants it. And they have a really cute thing in the lobby where they have like an orange in a jar that hasn't received light. They call it light, not Reiki. And another jar, an orange that has received it. And it's decomposed at a much lower rate, the one that gets light. So this is like a Japanese version of Reiki. Is Reiki Japanese actually? Yeah, Reiki is Japanese, yes. Okay, so it is also Japanese. <laughs> not doing a great job of... No, no, I can, I can, I, I can, can I just jump in really quickly? Yeah, jump um, in because I'm not 100% sure the difference is between the two. I just know that like... The Reiki people think Reiki is superior and the Sukiyo Maikari people think Sukiyo Maikari is superior. Yeah. And I'm not sure like what. The way that the way that I like to think of it. So so I'm a I don't know as much about Sukiyo Mahikari, but I can say that I've when you took me to the temple, I like kind of studied it afterwards and I'm a Reiki master. So like what I've learned is that basically Reiki, you can think of it as like, imagine that there's in a massive spectrum of all the different energy and it's just this, and there's so many different threads that are, that are all within the light and the, the invisible light and the visible light spectrum. There are all these different frequencies and, and they have all these kind of complexities and things like that. And Reiki uses symbols to basically pull two or three that they know are specifically good for distance healing that they know are specifically good for that are specifically good for, you know, amplification, things along those lines kind of a lot of the things that we talk about when it comes to the bodies and 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 you can connect it back to so many different things but the point being that it's very reiki you become attuned to a very very specific frequency and then you apply it to whatever it is where suhyo mahikari i think says that it is more of a holistic more of a it, it has a spectrum as opposed to a single color or a single color within a color if that makes sense that that reiki is is very specifically attuned for so that's kind of the idea, right? There's a, I think that there's like a rainbow Reiki that claims to be more holistic of the spectrum, very similar to, to like light, because obviously light includes all the visible light spectrum, if that makes sense, right? So all this visible healing spectrum is in Sukiyo Mahaikari, whereas Reiki is more like, we're going to pull out this specific thing here, if that makes sense. All right. 
So the next one I want to talk about is cranial sacral therapy. Cranial sacral therapy is this belief that, you know, you have your meninges, which is the, like the sac that the brain lies in. And it, there's a, a sac that goes down your spinal cord. And within that is cerebral spinal fluid and that it has a pulse. And so cranial sacral therapy is to basically get in tune with that pulse and then sync it up in a correct way in your body. And the research out there says that A, there is no pulse and B, if there is one, practitioners of, can't, uh, practitioners of cranial sacral therapy can't agree on it, right? Now, I actually learned the 10-step protocol by Upledger and cranial sacral therapy was one of the things that really got me into the body. And I don't necessarily know if I believe that the CS, the cerebral spinal fluid stuff is actually doing anything, but the myofascial releases that come with it are without a doubt in my mind amazing. And there is a lot of research out there that myofascial release can help with chronic pain and all sorts of conditions. And I can say from experience that if you put your hands on someone's body and you stay there long enough doing myofascial release, and this person put, gets themselves in theta or alpha state with you guiding them, they can have deep emotional, like long lasting purges of trauma trigger like trauma, pain, like all sorts of things, you know, like I can't even like, like it's, it's magic. Okay. Yeah. It's just magic. And I don't, I, I don't know what else to say, but it's just magic. Like yeah. it's the trauma's in the body and it can come out through that kind of loving touch. Yeah. So both of my kids got, got cranial sacral therapy. There was a, a pediatric specialist in Bloomington. And so my daughter was tongue tied and so she basically, and my daughter was born with her hand up by her right ear. And so like this, this cranial sacral therapist basically released the, the birth trauma and like the womb, like it's not really wound trauma, but like basically the, the tension and the, and the, the things in the body. And it was just a completely fascinating thing and made it so that she could actually eat again and like recover from her tongue tie cutting phrenectomy that she had. So it's, it's a pretty amazing thing for even something as, as young as a infant. So, yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit about acupuncture. There is strong evidence out there that acupuncture is an effective treatment for chronic pain conditions. Okay. So that isn't really disputed much. I mean, some insurances will cover it. They don't cover things that are placebo. So like we can rest assured that acupuncture does help for certain conditions, but for depression, meaning like we could say a subset of trauma or a byproduct of trauma, that depression, there is not evidence that acupuncture helps, but in the case when it is used adjunctly, or we should say complementary to conventional care, it does show significant improvement. So basically people receiving counseling in addition to acupuncture or medication in addition to acupuncture are going to do better than the people who are getting acupuncture alone or medication alone or counseling alone, right? So it's it's been shown in the literature to be an awesome complementary therapy, but not necessarily an alternative therapy, which we explained in the previous episode that alternative therapy is instead of complementary is adjunct or complementary to. Sweet. Okay. So I want to briefly mention IFS, but we episode 320 in the last season, we talk extensively about IFS and also we demonstrated in bonus 15. IFS is a very effective method for dealing with trauma in the form of your internal family. The idea being that your internal family are basically versions of you and previous ages of you, inner children of you, exiles, whatever you want to say, 
that are your wounded children that need to be reintegrated and by reintegrating you're able to address your trauma and process your trauma. If you're interested in more of that, I recommend you go back and watch or, and listen to those episodes. Meditation is another one. So meditation is a really interesting thing in the sense that obviously meditation is very good for your brain. And it's very good for your functioning. There's all sorts of research that you can look into it for it. But I kind of want to bring out, you know, in season one, we talk about all the different types of meditation and how the traditional version that you may think of is not necessarily the best one for you, right? Like if you find that you struggle with meditation, or you don't really know how to apply it to trauma work, then, you know, find, you can be creative with the form of meditation that you, that you find in the form of, of think of whatever it is that you're looking for. So, you know, we mentioned Vipassana a lot and how Vipassana is, is watching, you know, Sankaras, which could be a form of trauma that's in the form of sensation that's coming up in your body. And that is a, that is a, a form of the subconscious trauma coming into the conscious awareness and being released from the body. You could also look at transcendental meditation and see how the, the ecstatic states that you go in basically release a certain energy within the body. Like, I mean, there's a fair amount of evidence that again, this is coming from the Maharishi Institute, which is one the, you know, the main proponent of TM, but you know, that people who meditate in a space together are able to affect and change the community and the region around them. And, and it's basically only like the square root of 2% of people are needed. So for the entire planet, just to give you an idea of the magnitude of that, that's like 8,000 people. And if you get that many people meditating- No, 2,000, 2% the square, of the The population? square root of 2%. Oh. The square root of 2% of the human population is only like 8,000 people, right? Oh and yeah, I could be wrong. It could be the United States, but I'm pretty sure it's the whole world. But anyway, when you get that many people meditating in a room together, they're able to change and affect the outcome of violence, wars, things along those lines. And so, so therefore, if, if a group of meditators can do that, doing transcendental meditation, then imagine an individual doing it on themselves. So that's just to kind of give you a preview of what it could be for meditation. So I also want to cover in kind of in tandem with IFS is a cognitive behavioral therapy, which is CBT, which is another very popular form of therapy that is used for, for kind of, it's less talk therapy and more kind of getting to the heart of what it is that you're looking for with trauma releases. The basic five-step processes, um, you know, particularly with cognitive behavioral therapy for stopping worrying or stopping repetitive thoughts that feel like they're destructive is, you know, the first step is you make a list. You make a list of like all the, the thoughts that come into your head. You specifically record the unproductive thoughts that come into your head. Then you create replacement thoughts that are then, you know, used to replace those unproductive thoughts. And then you read your list often, right? So it's kind of like an affirmation or something that you're trying to do. And then as you go along, every time you notice one of those unproductive thoughts coming up, you then replace it with a productive thought. So that's an example of, you know, using of a particular technique within cognitive behavioral therapy that you can use to kind of, I, I would say it's almost more of a symptom helper in this particular case, that kind of example that I'm giving you, neuro-linguistic programming that we talk about in season one also has very similar techniques. But the basic idea is that, you know, your makeup and the trauma that you hold in your body are stories that you are telling yourself over and over and over again. And sometimes you can't hear it because it's sitting at this kind of subconscious level 
and being able to notice and replace the 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 beliefs that keep that trauma in place is actually very crucial to being able to release that trauma because once you kind of you know release the thoughts that kind of anchor that trauma in place then the trauma is free to leave your body and you kind of don't have a charge around it and then i really want to touch on dream work Dream work is something that I actually want to talk about more when we talk about the uh, aftermath of trauma processing work. So after you process trauma, you know, you may experience a lot of activity in your dreams. You may experience things like that. So I'm going to kind of reserve that for later. But the most important thing is that dream work is whether you're lucid dreaming, whether your subconscious is doing dream work and you're kind of having these clues and, and kind of breadcrumbs in your dreams that you can remember if you do remember your dreams or whether or not you're going into a trance state during meditation or whether or not you're going into a trance state during psychedelics they all get you to a level of your subconscious and they allow your subconscious to give you guidance and clues as to where you may need to go as to where you may need to do and i'm going to give you an example of this okay a couple of weeks ago anna and robbie and i were all up at the lake house and I had so many flipping dreams. I think I told you guys all about one in that episode that we had with Robbie a couple of weeks ago. But one of the dreams that I didn't talk about was this dream that I had that was, I was at my college in a dorm that I didn't even live in when I was at college. And I had a dream that I was like hunting, like it was like a post-apocalyptic dream and I was hunting and I had a bunch of rabbits that I was going to bring up into my dorm room and skin and cook for dinner. And as soon as I started skinning one of these rabbits, a snake came out and bit me and then was like running all over the room, right? Okay, so there's a couple of things. The crazy, one of the crazy things is that this same fucking snake kept showing up in dreams for nights and nights and nights after, like the exact same snake. So that's weird anyway, right? That your, your, that symbol would keep appearing even in even between waking states and everything like that but you know it was like the the significance of a snake biting you in a dream is all about transformation and it's actually a very there's a lot of it's a very good omen right it means like oh you're into a, you're into a period of transformation and so the fact that these rabbit skins and the snake it was like oh wow this is really amazing i don't know what this means so then a week passes and i'm about to leave on a trip and I'm really nervous about this trip, but I'm like, okay, it's it's okay. This trip was for me approving. It was a place in which I was creating a boundary that I had never created before. I was like standing up and I was like, I'm gonna be an adult in the face of people who have hurt me and traumatized me. And I don't know if I can actually do it. Like I don't trust myself to not either lose it or turn into a kid again or like revert or relapse. Like I'm really worried about this trip. And just before I was about to go to the airport, I go down to my pool and I check in the filter and there is a dead rabbit in there. And I know that that might be triggering for some people, but like literally I have had this pool for so fucking long and there has never been a mammal in there. There has never, there's, there's like, there has never been anything like that in the entire time that I have lived there. We have no rabbits in that area. Like I do live in the woods, so there are rabbits around, but like, the fact that a week after I had this dream about skinning a rabbit and I literally found a dead rabbit, 
like I can't tell you guys the significance of how much that meant to me. And it was like, okay, so this is a transformation moment. Like I'm about to go into this transformation moment in which that rabbit was like the world was telling me you're on the right track. Like to me, it felt, I felt so much better having seen that rabbit, even though I was very sad that it had died in my pool. But like, I felt so much better knowing that I was on the right track because I knew that this was part of my transformation. So, you know, dreams can help you in that way as well. Wow. Did you tell me that rabbit story? I did. I told you and Robbie, I like was flipping out. You may have missed it, but I was like, holy shit, guys. I was going to, I was even going to send you a picture, but I thought you should have sent a picture. I I have it still. I would have remembered better. Yeah. 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 Okay. All right. I'm going to talk about group therapy. So I read this interesting book called The Wonder Drug, Seven Scientifically Proven Ways That Serving Others is the Best Medicine for Yourself. And it's a book written by two doctors and they just basically go at it, sharing research after research after research study about why being altruistic or community focused or connection focused instead of success focused is good for your longevity and your happiness and all sorts of amazing immune system boosters. So So first of all, connection with others is like one of the best things you can do. So what about group therapy? Group therapy then is connecting with others in a therapeutic sense of people with similar situation, people who are experiencing similar things as you, like you group therapy is kind of a hallmark cost-effective treatment for rehab centers dealing with addiction, or, you know, you go to a grief counseling session and that again is like a grief recovery group is a great example of group therapy. Some researchers looked at 50 different clinical trials and they showed, found that group therapy is as effective as individual therapy for conditions, including depression, obesity, and social anxiety. So what does group therapy look like? Basically group therapy involves one or more psychologists who lead a group of anywhere between five to about typically 15 patients. They meet for one to two hours a week and some people attend individual therapy in addition to these group therapies. So like Al-Anon or Alcoholics Anonymous or Narc Anonymous, these are all examples of group therapy in a way. So basically there's not much difference. I mean, basically the data showing it's not that different than individual therapy. It's probably more cost-effective. Sometimes these are free and it might be a great way to meet other people who are experiencing the same kind of trauma that you are. So there's that. Yeah, I, I love, I think it's, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman says, pain shared is pain divided. Joy shared is joy multiplied. We do that. Aww, yeah. Cute. Yeah. We do that as humans. We share the pain. We divide our pain at the same time. We multiply our joy. Okay. So I'm just going to do hypnosis here. And as you can see, we have a lovely little trend going on, whether it's psychedelics, whether it's trance meditation, whether it's, you know, getting into ecstatic states or using breath work or whatever you want to say. Hypnosis is another example of getting into the subconscious layer and getting around the brain's defenses in order to basically go into a deeper space. And that's ultimately kind of what that, what I think is really, really important that we look out with all of these different kind of that can be light or dark is that effectively, if you want to use IFS as, a, as an example, is that you have protectors in the brain who are trying to prevent you from accessing these deep subconscious levels of trauma that you have hidden inside of yourself because they are thought to be destructive they are thought to be you know to bring out bad behaviors they are considered you know they're unlovable parts of you in a lot of ways right 
and whether or not they actually are, whether or not you've just judged them as that. So all of these techniques that we're talking to y'all about are all about how are you addressing the fact that your mind has blockers and it has protectors that are stopping you from getting into the subconscious layer of your mind. Hypnosis goes directly is another method of going directly into the subconscious to deal with the subject, the, to deal with the matter that is inside the subconscious and, and, you know, going into that trance state to do that. So, you know, how we talked about all the different processing that you can do and what you choose to do while you're in the subconscious is kind of up to you, the practitioner that you're using, the process that you're using, but hypnosis is obviously very useful for that. We've talked in the past about Marissa Peer and rapid tra transformational th therapy. You can talk about past life regression, which is also another form of hypnosis, which obviously looks to go beyond the confines of our existing life. If you look at episode 214, which is the look into my eyes episode, we talk a lot more about, we talk a lot more about hypnosis and its effectiveness. A study showed that, you know, basically 600 sessions of psychoanalysis, so talk therapy, was said to be basically 38% effective. Behavioral therapy, which is obviously cognitive behavioral therapy, which we mentioned earlier, after 22 sessions was said to be 72% effective. And hypnotherapy, after only six sessions, was said to be 93% effective. So getting past woo, those, woo. <laughs> getting past the barriers of the, of the conscious mind, which are wanting to stop you, you could say that's your ego, you could say whatever you want, but the point is, is that getting past those barriers and getting to the actual matter of where the hurt part of you, the tender, vulnerable part of you sits is crucial to trauma work. My turn. Okay, and that hypnosis, your little your your little ditty on uh, ditty, your little ditty on hypnosis leads perfectly into exposure therapy. I'm going to be talking about exposure therapy, but you can do exposure therapy also through hypnosis. Like that's one of the best ways I think to do it because you go so deep in. So, what is exposure therapy? First of all, that's a dark practice because it's basically addressing head on your triggers or your trauma memories or your trauma itself or the thing you're afraid of. According to evidence-based behavioral practice.org, about 60 to 90% of people have either no symptoms or mild symptoms of their original disorder after completing exposure therapy. So now this is coming from the APA, the American Psychological Association. Exposure therapy is a psychological treatment that was developed to help people confront their fears. When people are fearful of something, they tend to avoid the feared objects, activity, or situation. Although this avoidance might help reduce feelings of fear in the short term, over the long term, it can make the fear become even worse. And then side note, as Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Okay. Yeah. So in these situations, psychologists might recommend a program of exposure therapy to break the pattern of avoidance and fear. In this form of therapy, psychologists create a safe environment to then expose you to the thing that you fear and avoid. Hypnosis is a great one. You could be in your safe bed and then conjure up images, right? The exposure to the feared objects, activities, or situation in a safe environment can help reduce fear and decrease the avoidance. So exposure to therapy has been demonstrated scientifically to be helpful with these problems, phobia, panic disorder, social anxiety disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, and general anxiety disorder. Yeah. PTSD is in there, but I swear that all the other ones are like byproducts of trauma. <laughs> That's just my own theory. So there are very 
there are some variations to exposure therapy. So I want to just talk about five different types of variations of exposure therapy. One is in vivo exposure, which is you directly face a feared object situation in real life. Like the classic example is you're afraid of snakes and then you are given to handle a snake. And then eventually maybe you even go into a room full of snakes. Okay. Imaginal exposure is you vividly imagine the fear object situation or activity. So for example, with combining hypnosis with PTSD, maybe you are asked to recall and describe the traumatic experience through imagining it, right? Like remembering it. Then you have virtual reality exposure, which is a little bit, which is basically in vivo, but with those like goggles on where you, you imagine seeing them. So like, if you have a fear of flying, you would wear these, the goggles and do virtual reality of like being in an airplane, you know, things like that. Yep. Then there's something called family constellation, which is actually more of a woo-woo technique that isn't in the APA list, but basically a family constellation is where you have different people represent different members of say of your family and you're given, you assign everybody like characters, like you're going to play my dad, you're going to play my mom, you're going to play my little brother. And you let them either like channel or intuitively sync up to that family member. And then you have conversations and like bring up stuff from the past. So that's like a more woo-woo version of exposure therapy. Then you have interoceptive exposure, going back to gay stuff, and you're deliberately bringing on physical sensations that are harmless yet feel feared. Yet, for example, someone with a panic disorder might be instructed to run in place to make their heart speed up so that they can get used to exposing themselves to that, like that panic of the, the chest pounding. So there's also different ways that you can pace exposure therapy. These are graded, flooding, and systematic desensitization. So for graded, it's going to be a fear hierarchy where it's ranked and then they go from mild to moderate to more difficult. The example being like, you know, with a snake, let's say like they give you the garden snake or, or maybe you look at pictures of snakes, right? And then eventually you touch a garden snake and then eventually maybe you like go into a room full of snakes, but they're in a cage. And then like the worst one would be like you lie on the floor and snakes crawl all over you. I mean, I'm kidding. They're not going to do that, but that's like, you know, the idea. Flooding would be the opposite. You would start with the most difficult task. Like you just fucking go in the room and lay down with all the snakes. Right. And then systematic desensitization is you would combine relaxation exercises to feel more relaxed and manageable. And then like, you can start to associate those feared objects with being relaxed. Okay. The reason why exposure therapy is thought to help, these are the hypothesis, is one is habituation. Habituation is that just people find that their reactions to feared objects or situation decrease with exposure. Number two, extinction. Exposure can help weaken previously learned associations between the feared object, activity, or situations. Three is self-efficacy. People can start to see that they are capable of controlling their own their own fears and manage their feelings when these things come up. And number four is emotional processing, that during the exposure, you can learn to create more realistic beliefs about the feared objects, or you can burn off that, like they don't say it this way, but burn off that karma, that emotional stuff stuck with it, right? Awesome. That's, it reminds me too, like of, I know with rejection sensitive dysphoria, that's like one of the things that they say is desensitization therapy is like one of the best things that you can do for it, right? Because, you know, the more, because people with rejection sensitive dysphoria have a tendency to, especially if they're ADHD or they're neurodivergent, they have an experience of lots of rejection of who they are, right? Because they're wired differently and things along those lines. And the more they can expose themselves to actual rejection and, and actually get an understanding of, you know, their sensitivity level 
to things that most people don't consider rejection as well as their reaction to it can decrease. So that's all. So last thing is kind of a really big category, but it's kind of also the topic of what we talk about in almost everything that we do here at TSF, which is the very kind of energy healing, shamans, alien technology, whatever it is that you want to say, there are a lot of different things that can be used specifically for dark healing. So for me, I feel like a lot of the the training that I did in energy healing was around dark trauma clearing, right? So for me, like when I do comprehensive clearings on people, when, when they're in person with me, I'm literally pulling stuff out of their body, whether it's past life stuff, whether it's, you know, w there's a physical act of, of and a physical and emotional and a spiritual act of basically pulling trauma out of the body, clearing any entities, demons, implants, whatever it is that you want to say. So that you know, that is a, that those serves two different purposes. One is that by removing the stressors that are in your energetic field, you are able to more clearly see your, your part in things, like what behaviors you have, you can kind of, you know, gain access to things and gain awareness of things that are there. Also, when you're removing entities and demons and implants from somebody's body, you are helping, you, you know, whether you're removing them from yourself or whether you're having a shaman or an energy healer remove them from you, you are processing trauma on a more unconscious level, right? Like you don't, you know, when I do clearings for people, I will sometimes be like, hey, you have a demon associated with, you know, with, with a belief or with, you know, something around the, the, you know, immigrant and what keeps coming up is like immigrant labor and how you basically always have to work hard. You can never, you can never slack off in anything that you do, right? Like you may have a demon associated with that, or you may have what I would call a tether to the collective unconscious about that, which is like heightening that experience in your awareness. And by clearing it, you're then processing it. And very similar to stuff like the emotion code, the emotion code is an example of an energy healing that is removing stuck emotions in the body, right? So whether they sit in the heart wall, which is a very specific part of the body that holds emotions, or whether or not it's anywhere else in the system, you're basically running magnets over the spinal cord with the intention of releasing that emotion. Sometimes that emotion needs to be known. Right. Sometimes you have to actually ask and be like, hey, do I know where this is? Is this a generational trauma? You actually always have to identify whether or not the emotion came from you or whether it came from generational because it kind of depends on how you release it. But, you know, is it a generational trauma? Like, where did it come from? How old was I when I came from it? Right. And sometimes that emotion needs to be identified as to its source. But a lot of the times you can just release stuff without necessarily knowing all that information. So, you know, there's the you know in terms of the entire process there's a lot of help that you can get from people that are around you and the way that i i usually say too because we've talked about this with with consent is that if you're going to an energy healer right and you you know it's very important that like you know a lot of the time energy healers will come into your awareness because you know a friend of a friend's like this is the most amazing person ever and what I usually say is, is listen to the universe and the signs it gives you as to whether or not you should be working with that person, right? Because everybody has a different technique for energy healing. One of the things that came into me when I was in my ketamine journeys was in a totally new way of healing, which is quite dramatic, but you know, it's not for everybody. And, you know, finding the person that's that that is the right person to to heal your energy and giving them consent to do it is incredibly important part of the journey because you know and and it, and it speaks to the thing that anna tells me all the time which is that 
processing your trauma doesn't have to be painful and it doesn't have to be hard work, you know, and having a yeah. healer help you do that can, can facilitate that. Yeah. We're wrapping up now all the different techniques that we talked about today. And hopefully we've given you guys a lot of things to flirt with or try and see what works for you. And like, yes, some of these things have a lot of research out there to back them up. And then there's other things that are a little more woo-woo, but that might just be the perfect thing that you need, even if it doesn't work for anyone else. Maybe the Arcturian cylinder is like the one thing that you needed. And then this thing has been coming up for me a lot lately. And I really, really, really want to address this. I thought a lot about it watching the Jeffrey Dahmer series. Like there are things in this world we will experience that you, there's no coming back from them. Like we talk all about trauma healing and trauma healing this and trauma healing that. And, and like, I think I've had this romantic vision of what healing looks like or what a perfect marriage looks like, or what healing my trauma is going to look like, you know, someone who let's say has a below the knee amputation, they're never going to grow that leg back. Right. What they can do is, is love and heal that residual limb so it can scar so that they can wear a prosthesis so they can walk again with a fake lower leg. They're, they're, it's like some of the things we have experienced, we can make peace with them and we can manage them, but I don't know if we can truly heal from everything. And, and I, and I hope that this is not like a pessimistic point of view, but you know, this thing came up on my Instagram feed today about Kintsugi, which is the golden repair in Japanese ceramics where like something breaks and you put it back together with this gold ceramic glue. And, and, and so it looks, it's never going to be the same. Right. And so like, we're giving you a lot of techniques, but I want you to know that it's okay if you feel like you've been changed and you're never going to get back to where you were like, like, I think trauma does and can change us in irrevocable ways. And we can heal as much as we can. And we can get on this path towards happiness. But a lot of this is about learning to manage what happened to us. It's not to erase it. Right. I think, I think it's kind of the ultimate codependent statement to say, I need to fix mm -hmm. myself for somebody else, right? Or somebody else needs to fix themselves in order to be okay with being me, right? Is to say it's, it's conditional love, right? It's conditional right. love, no matter and, what it is. And like there, I may never get to my, like my goal. Maybe this life is not the lifetime that I get there. Maybe I never will get there. Maybe the goal is really just to be okay with wherever I am along this journey, whether I'm still completely shards of ceramic. <laughs> There's not one little golden glue paint dried yet. Maybe yeah. that's what it's really about is just loving all the shards of you, whether you're a full plate, a broken plate, shards, of, shards of the plate or the golden plate. Like, Yeah. Yeah. And that segues really well into kind of the post processing experience, which I really need to speak about because yes, I work like I've mentioned before, I do a lot of energy clearing and a lot of it is since especially since this new process is coming is, is quite dramatic, right in the sense that it, it really pulls a lot of things out of people's bodies, it really pull, you know, it really kind of does this and I've been a part of healing techniques that can be very dramatic. And even if they're not dramatic, there are some really key things that I want to mention in this. One is when you release trauma from the body, like Anna was saying, body work is capable of accessing trauma and therefore you need to protect 
and not protect. You need to nurture the body in the process after you've experienced trauma. So usually what I recommend for all the people that I know is give yourself a foot massage because a lot of the trauma will be leaving through your feet in the ground. So give yourself a foot massage, go walk on the bare earth, you know, kind of do everything that you can to kind of help facilitate the the circuitry of, of having the trauma leave your body. The next thing is drink plenty of water. You know, the next thing is take a bath with Epsom salts and, and baking soda, right? Like these are just like basic self-help things, but you know, they're very important for recognizing that your body is literally releasing toxicity that's been held on that it's held on to for years possibly and it's been sitting in a body that's outside but there is going to be a physical aspect of that and it's and it's your job at, to support yourself during that which means giving yourself a lot of grace you may have a bunch of headaches you may have you know you may you may be feeling like you can't stop crying you may be feeling all these different things and it's really important to recognize that that you know if you're feeling it and it feels like it's kind of out of balance go back to the healer who helped you and say what do you recommend is there any kind of shift or slight you know adjustment that you can do that can make it so that i don't cry all day and i've and i've had people come to me just to say that and be like hey i really need to work and i can't right now because there's so much coming out of my body and i'm like absolutely let's let's adjust that and i'll adjust an energy in their body and it'll, and it'll help with that right to kind of re re kind of wire where the energy the emotional energy is draining from their body as opposed to their eyes it can be through their feet or through something else like that you know some people experience like for instance with trey is a very interesting thing because sometimes if you don't if, if your body gets used to doing tray and then all of a sudden you stop doing tray then it may be that your body's still going to be purging that trauma but it may choose to do it through your digestive tract which i cannot tell you how many people you know experience that you know things along those lines right uh, and then the other thing I want to say too, is that, you know, give yourself a lot of grace in terms of, you know, we've talked about boundaries this season. Can I throw in a couple things yeah. real quick? And yeah. then also, also with processing out your trauma, there's a couple things to be aware of. One thing I was going to say was like, you might dream of your abuser over and over and over again, every night of the week, every night of the month, every night of the year while you're doing this trauma work. And like, that might be really crazy. And then another thing is losing friendships or jobs. Like you don't know how many times I've done major trauma work and I've lost friendships because that person that I used to really jive with, I no longer jive with anymore. Jive is a funny word, but like, you know, you, there, there might be friends that you're connected to because you have shared trauma or because on some way they mimic your abuser. And then when you heal that trauma, they just don't have a place in your life again. One of my great friends called me the other day. She's like, I just don't feel like being social with anyone here. And I'm like, that is a normal part of trauma healing sometimes is like you flush out your old friend group or you might get a new job or whatever. Anyways. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I want to say something too about dreams in particular is that, you know, one of the things that happened to me after I've done this recent trauma clearing was I literally kept having dreams about it. And I think in, in some senses I could tell when I woke up, sometimes it was the other dimensions of me, the other realities of me catching up, right? Like they were having similar experiences, right? And a lot of the times we find that, especially if we do a massive piece of trauma work that feels like a life trauma lesson, so to speak, it, it, that has ramifications in all the different dimensions of your reality. 
And you may just be becoming aware of all those different dimensions of reality is what I found, right? Is that like, especially if you keep having recurring dreams and it's a slightly different version of something or something else is happening. If you have other, if you have dreams of your abuser, it may be that you still have connections to them that you need to address, right? So I remember I had a dream about my abuser and I found that like, you know, it was just revealing, it was increasing my awareness of something in which I, I, I hadn't realized that I was like, cutting myself off from other aspects of myself. So using IFS as an example, I had a dream in which my abuser basically cut off the stairs and in the attic was a teenage version of myself who was like, this teenage version was just like messy and you know, me, right? Like in every single way, it was like my very neurodivergent self. And in this dream, the my abuser basically you know cut off the staircase and made it so i had to like they were like we dismantled the stairs and you need to read this you need to, and it's your job to put the stairs back together and i was like why'd you dismantle the stairs so i couldn't get to this part anyway and they were like oh well right and so they literally made me reassemble these stairs to get back up to a part of myself right but it was incredibly symbolic for ifs of like oh this is a part that was exiled into an attic and and I was told to cut them off because they were unacceptable because they were messy or because they were whatever and and now it's my job to get back to that place you know so it's like they can t it can tell you a lot of different things about kind of what's going on and kind of help you diagnose what may be happening with your connections and and make you aware of other work that can be done other things that I want to say too is that you know I mentioned relapse in a previous episode, actually, when we were talking to Robbie, I mentioned relapse. And I think it's really, really important to recognize that, like, if you feel as if you've done a bunch of shadow work, and if you feel like you've done a lot of trauma processing, and you've created a boundary, and then you lost that boundary, or you, you know, you, you started fawning and let the person cross that boundary, or you feel like you went back into a trauma bond or anything along those lines, you know what it's really really hard work y'all like you need to give yourself as much grace as possible and you know what don't make promises to your inner children don't make promises to yourself that's like i'm gonna do better this time this is it this is the time i'm gonna do it right like just be loving to yourself just like you would a kid a kid who's learning a new language or a kid who's you know learning how to do something for the first time this is what's going on with you you're learning how to do this for the first time and you may have been having the same behavior and you may have done that behavior 10,000 times before. So do you really expect that the number one time you do it in a new way, you're gonna get it perfect? You're not, and that's okay. And give yourself as much grace as possible. Give yourself as much grace as possible for, for how it is, you know? And then finally, you know, one of the things I talk about with Jay Fields, I'm taking her class yours truly. The thing I love about her class is that it, it not only helps you give you the kind of healing aspects of the trauma, but it's also teaching us new ways of doing things. One of the favorite things that she talks about that we're doing right now is the idea that most of us are taught that there's only one reality, that that one reality, and that's a very father wound thing, right? So when you have one reality, everybody is, everyone is taught that everybody has their own reality, but one has to be supreme right? So it's the parent over the child, right? It's the narcissist over the victim. It's the, you know, it's the so-and-so over the so-and-so, right? We're all taught that, that like, that's just the way that it happens, right? Like my reality is the reality and your reality isn't. So whether you're being gaslit or whether it's in, an, in a regular relationship in which somebody's like, well, my reality is a reality. 
How many times have you had an argument with your partner? And the partner's like, well, I remember it this way. And the other person's like, I remember it this way. And then you spend so long fighting about what reality is real when actually both realities are real, y'all. And like learning the fact that like acknowledging the other person's reality is such a massive part of learning a new way of doing things, right? Thing that you don't have to supersede somebody else's reality and that you know that's when you start to get away from trauma responses that's when you start to get to a new way of working because you're recognizing that both people have realities that are totally valid right and and the more that you can re acknowledge them the more that you allow them to to live and to actually have choice in their life so that's an example of it and so finding a new way of doing things is really crucial to being able to replace the behaviors that you may have no reason for otherwise you may just fall back into your own patterns and old patterns so those, that's what i wanted to say in terms of of the kind of recovery process from trauma processing very nice i like it picasso to close this i want to talk a little bit just about bridging the different bodies right you have emotional mental physical and spiritual and christina was saying for example you do all this trauma work in your daily life but then you go to bed at night and your abuse is showing up in the dreams and you know why is that maybe because on some spiritual level you still have tethers to this person or maybe there's some emotional stuff that you haven't yet done like maybe you physically made the boundaries and physically you've written that letter that you never going to mail and you've done all this stuff in the physical but you haven't yet done the other stuff. So I like to just say whatever trauma you're dealing with, see if you can tackle it on all four planes, physical, emotional, mental, spiritual. So things that are physical would be, you know, tray, yoga, breath work, body work, that vagal nerve stuff, tapping, EMDR, crawling, exercise, nutrition. Mental work would be things like the psychedelics or changing your beliefs or mantras or, Hey, do your mantras while you're crawling. Silva mind control method is a great one. CBT, Vipassana meditation, exposure therapy, internal family systems, looking at your belief systems, thought work, like all that is examples of mental body stuff. Emotionally, you can look at catharsis, purging those emotions, ayahuasca, microdosing, group therapy, again, exposure therapy, hypnosis, IFS, confiding in a good friend, connecting with people, and spiritually, hypnosis, breath work, meditations, Ho'oponopono, which is radical forgiveness, as well as cutting ties, ceremonies, vow breaking, like doing some sort of ceremony where you cut the ties to your abuser. Maybe there are an incubus, maybe there is a succubus and you have to like cut ties through all dimensions. Like there's just different things you can do energetically as well. So there's that. And then to kind of end, this was like perfect timing. And this came up on my feed. It's from Nawal Mustafa, the brain coach on Instagram. And these are just seven affirmations or mantras to remind yourself to not beat yourself up during your trauma healing. And I'd love to read them, Chris, if that's okay. Cause I just, I feel like yeah. they're just perfect for, for closing this. Yep. So these are seven things to say instead of beating yourself up. Number one, I deserve to show up for myself and set boundaries. Two, I am human and will make mistakes. It is how I respond and move forward that matters. Three, I'm doing the best I can with what I know right now. Four, rejection sucks, but I choose to take it as redirection to something better. Five, not all days will be good, but I can find little pockets of joy in each day. Six, I deserve to take up space and voice things that matter to me. Seven, this is like my favorite. Progress is not linear. It's normal to have days I make no progress or regress. Hell, it's even lifetimes, right? 
What matters is how I bounce back and maintain consistency. We have really appreciated y'all coming along, all of your feedback. We love it so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for everybody who has shared the episode with people, you know, your friends, you know, all of all of you out there. I know you. Some of you guys are my clients who've come and seen me. And some of us are, are people who've written to us and things along those lines. Like you listen to this with whole groups of friends like we cannot thank you enough. And, you know, this season has been a journey. It's been a journey. Thank you, Anna, for taking us on such an amazing journey this season and thank you um Me? well yeah <laughs> <laughs> with the father wound oh, and all that kind wound. of stuff yeah it's you know but you know i i we have a lot of interesting stuff in store we've talked about a lot this season and we can we'll talk about it more and when we have an instagram live between the seasons so thanks for sticking with us this season and we look forward to seeing y'all next season thanks for listening Thank you so much for listening to this episode and this season of This Spiritual Fix. Be sure to join us on Instagram at this.spiritual.fix for our IG Live, which we will also be posting in between the seasons, as well as our two favorite most recent episodes and a special bonus interview. So stay tuned while we're gone. And remember, humility, gratitude, acceptance, Let me tell y'all a riddle. There are four girls and four apples in a basket. Every girl takes an apple, yet one apple remains in the basket. How is this possible? The answer, one girl took the basket. She took the last apple while it was in the basket. Sometimes all it takes is a perspective shift. This is my specialty, y'all, and I am opening up two spots in the next two months for dedicated journeyers to work with me to find peace, purpose, and most importantly, perspective. In these journeys, we co-create a curriculum that suits your current blocks, goals, and needs, and we use all the tools, shadow work, books, fiction, remote viewing, intuition, meditation, guided journeys, energy healing, dreaming techniques, you name it, we do it, and all to achieve a commonly held set of objectives. And if you're interested in hearing more, Book a free call with me at www.chriswilty.com forward slash discover.